uh, let's let's start with a quick prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you uh, that you let us feel your presence here today. That you teach us how much you care about us. Show us your love for us. Help us to see how you're acting in our lives, and help us to go deeper in pursuing you. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I wanted to start out with a with a with a Bible verse. This is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, uh, 57 through 62. As Jesus and his disciples were proceeding on their journey, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered him, Foxes have dens, and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. But he answered him, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my family at home. Jesus answered him, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. So that, that verse always kind of struck me because Jesus seems like a real jerk, right? Like you, you read that and you think, so the first guy apparently... Uh, has some kind of issue where he, he doesn't really like the idea of being moving around from place to place, right? And that's what kind of is stopping him from going deeper. And that that's an understandable perspective, right? Like uh, uh, Curtis Martin, the founder of Focus Fellowship of Catholic University students, says like he talks about how Jesus took the 12 apostles camping for three years, right? Camping for three years is a really long time to go camping. I went camping once for about six weeks, by the end, like, you're done, right? You want a shower, you want a bed. Three years? That is a long time. And you could see somebody like, Lord, I'll follow you. Well, we're not going to have any nice place for a little while. All right, well, maybe I'll just catch up at the tail end of your whole ministry thing, right? Um, the next guy, so this first guy is, is asking, like, I want to follow you. This next guy, Jesus actually goes to him and says, follow me. Gives him a direct and personal invitation to follow him. Presumably to be, like, part of the inner circle, like one of the, the higher-end disciples, so to speak. And he can't accept it, right? Because he wants to bury his father. And Jesus says, well, if you want to bury your father, you can't follow me, right? Let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. And, and the guy presumably can't. And then the third guy, all he wants to do is say goodbye to his family. Like he's ready to leave him behind. And all he wants to do is be able to say goodbye. And Jesus says, no, it's now or never, right? And that, that strikes me because all of them are like good things. And it seems odd that a good thing would ever get in the way of us following Jesus. But here in this instance, there are these three people who for all accounts should be following Christ, who could be following Christ, who could be following him in a very intimate way. And yet these three things, despite the fact that they're good things, these three things keep them from doing that. These three things end up as, as obstacles between them and Christ. These three things, despite the fact that they're good, actually keep them from the greatest good. So, I think that this is something that can that can come out even in our faith lives sometime, right? Like there are a lot of good things that we have in our life, but when the time comes to to test whether or not they're better than our relationship with Christ, we're not able to deliver, right? There's a, a book I read a little while ago. It's called The Lord of the World. Has anybody ever read The Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson? super, super old book. It's like, a, it's about a hundred years old. It was written in, I think like 1901, something like that. So it's old. And in it, it's the story of the, of the antichrist, right? Which is like, yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's cool, exciting Catholic stuff when you talk about the antichrist. But the story is following this, this holy priest, right? Who's intent on following Christ. And there's this other priest who lives with him, who's, who's been a priest at this parish for a long time. And, and as the, the Antichrist continues to gain power in the world, and as the Antichrist continues to oppose the church and make it more and more difficult to follow Christ, this other priest walks into the, uh, the protagonist's room, office, whatever, and says, like, I'm leaving. I 
can't be a priest anymore. I have to walk away from, right? And he does. And we don't really see him for most of the book except at the end. And he shows up again. And this time he's actually working as a priest in a church, in the church that's run by the Antichrist, right? So like the anti-church. Like he's one of the bad guys. He's given up everything. And this, it's just a few paragraphs at the beginning of a chapter. And this guy, this, this guy who left the priesthood, the guy, this guy who left the discipleship of Christ, right? Has walked away from Christ at this point. He's got a little model of the cathedral. And in this model, he's got all these little dolls that are dressed up in various, like, chasubles and albs and stuff like that. And he's got all these dolls that he's marching down in a procession in, the, in the, this toy cathedral. And the reason he's doing this is because he's in charge of planning the coronation ceremony for the Antichrist. And it becomes clear just through this one scene. The author doesn't have to say anything. It's in this one scene of this guy doing this thing with all these silly little dolls and this silly little model of a church that it becomes clear that the only reason he was ever a priest to begin with is because he really liked like playing with like liturgical things, right? Like that's what he was into. It was never about Jesus Christ. Kind of the reason why I wanted to have this as a topic, keeping your eyes on Christ as you go deeper in your faith, is because I know, I'm sure a lot of you guys are probably coming out of college at some degree. You probably, a lot of you are here because you've had like a conversion experience. You want to follow Christ. You've met Christ, right? You want to know how to go deeper. There are things that we can go deeper in in the wrong direction. There are things, even very good things, that if we're not careful, can end up getting in the way of, of our relationship with him if we're doing it for the wrong reasons, if we're not focused on Christ and Christ alone. And so I kind of wanted to, to talk through some of those things, just as like, like, here are some good things. Here are some great things that the church has to offer us. How can we like go deeper in these good things and keep them good things that truly draw us, draw us closer to Christ? And how at the same time can we avoid them like getting in the way of our relationship. Just like those, those three jokers from uh, the Gospel of John who like let good things get in the way of a better thing. How can we let our good things draw us towards the better thing and never get in the way? And like I think that that's actually something that we have to watch out for. I remember I was at a parish once, and the pastor at this parish was looking at our, our First Communion program. So all of our kids for First Communion, they do like a whole lot of arts and crafts. They do a whole lot of stuff that was like they painted like a glass chalice. They made, they made these big banners, right? You guys, we all made the banners, right? We all had the felt and cut it out and drew the markers on these felt banners. Or more likely, we all sat there and watched while our parents made these felt banners, right? <laughs> We all, we all did this, and, and the, pastor, the pastor of this parish was saying, like, you know, I think that we're kind of losing focus on why we're doing this, and we're not focused on teaching these kids what the Eucharist is. What we're focused on is these, these banners, right? Like these banners, these arts and crafts, right? So this pastor came up with the idea of saying, like, let's take a year where we just focus on teaching them who Christ is. And we won't worry about the crafts, the banners, all that stuff, right? So we did that. And it was a nightmare, right? Because, because for some reason, people really like those craft banners. And we ended up having a lot of meetings with angry parents. And, and a lot of them were great. Because a lot of them were, the parents came to us and said, like, we think that based on where these kids are at, these craft banners are the best way to teach them who Jesus is. And like that is a great discussion that everybody should want to have on a parish staff. It's like, yes, let's talk about how to do this the best way that we can. Let's talk about making disciples. Let's talk about introducing our kids to Jesus Christ. Let's talk about what we can do to show them how important this is. What's the best way to do it? So those were good conversations. But the crazy ones were the ones where... Uh, we explain, like, this is what we see as the problem. Our kids are not forming this good relationship early enough. 
and we think that the banners are part of a problem and we want to try to focus on the relationship with Christ. And there were some folks, and I feel like I'm remembering this pretty accurately, who, who said pretty much along the lines of, we're not interested in the relationship with Christ. We want the banners. Now, at that moment, if Jesus Christ walked into the room and said, let the dead have their banners or something like that, like, would they have been able to follow Christ? At that moment, if the Antichrist walked in and said, my church has banners, how many of them would go in that direction, right? Like, so we find things in our, there are things that are, like, there's nothing wrong with banners. Banners are fine. But if we focus on that as the highest good, then ultimately we lose track of, of why we're Christians, of why we do this at all. I am sure that you have all had the experience also of somebody who works in the church. Uh, I was just talking to somebody the other day. Uh, they were in the parking lot uh, trying to look on their phone to figure out what part of the church they were supposed to go to. And some church employee came out and just started screaming at them like, you're not allowed to park here. You need to get out of here, right? We've all had experiences too where people who should be working for the church should be committed to like charity and love and kindness and guidance just flip out on us, right? And that's, that's the same thing. It's letting something get in the way of introducing Christ. It's letting something get in the way of our relationship with him, right? So I want to talk about three areas in particular that are good things. How to talk about, like, I want to talk about how they're good. I want to talk about how we can make them better. And I want to talk about what, what we can avoid to make sure that they don't get in the way. And the first one I want to talk about is, is liturgy. So that is, say, like the mass, the way that we the practice the sacraments, uh, the way that we're involved in, in the public worship of, of Christ, of our God, right? And that's a good thing. I know, uh, I know a story. A friend of mine had a friend, a friend of a friend of a friend. The reason that they came to understand and believe in the Eucharist was they, uh, they watched the priest after communion purify the vessels, right? So if you're, some parishes don't do this. Um, a lot of parishes, the priest will sit there and wash out all the vessels with, with water and then with the, with the purificators. And the reason he's doing that, of course, is because we believe in the real presence that even the smallest part of a host, even the smallest crumb that's left in one of the bowls or, or the smallest bit of wine that's left in the chalice, that's still Jesus, right? Like that deserves as much of our love as if Christ was right there in the room with us, as much as our love is, you know, in that movie, The Passion of the Christ, where Our Lady is wiping up the blood at the, at the base of the pillar after Christ is scourged, right? Like, that's the affection we should be showing for the sacrament. And this person, the friend of a friend of a friend, saw the priest cleaning out those vessels, and that's when it really hit her of, like, this is what we believe, or this is what Catholics believe. And it was that, that moment of the liturgy that really hit them as, like, I believe this too, and I want to understand this better. And I imagine we've probably all had those moments where, where something is just super awesome at the liturgy, like a great homily or like adoration where there's like just like this awesome incense and great music, and, and it just you just feel it, right? And that, that experience of good liturgy draws you deeper into loving Christ, right? Like that's, those are all really good things. And good liturgy, well done, should always draw us closer to Christ, should always draw us in to appreciate that, that relationship more, should always draw us into appreciating his love for us more, right? And the way that we can really dive into that is by understanding and learning to be able to participate more and more. So I don't know, when I, I, I've been going to daily mass all through seminary, right? We have to, it's a requirement, but I did it. So we went through seminar every, every morning going to Mass, every day. When I was ordained as a priest and started, even, even when I was in seminary and practicing to be a priest, learning how to say the Mass, when I was actually a priest saying the Mass, I read things in the Mass that I had like never noticed before and saw these beautiful things that I had just totally glossed over. And like to actually be able to read those things and see them in a new way it really, it changed the way that I, that I saw the Mass. It changed the way I understood it. It certainly changed the way, you know, being a new priest that I said it. Like, if we can, like, dive in and actually understand what's going on, 
like if you have like a missile with you that you can kind of follow along or read on the side, if you can go to like some sort of class or listen to some CDs or watch YouTube videos or whatever to learn about what the mass is. If you want to go to uh, like the extraordinary form or see like a Latin mass or something just to understand like what our heritage is, like to kind of understand what's going on, like that's going to draw you in even deeper. And if we can participate with the mass, and that's not just meaning like you have to be a lector or a distributor or an usher or sing in the choir or, you know, be the person who greets people as they walk in or work in the parking lot. It's not that kind of participation. It's like actually being able to be in the pews and like offer up yourself along with the gifts, right? To be able to, at the penitential act, actually like consider what our sins are and actually like engage with that then that brings us in so much deeper and that makes that liturgy an even more profound experience that draws us even more beautifully towards Christ. The danger zone, right? There's always a point that we have to be careful of that we're getting into that and further deeper for the wrong reasons. Father Jason Williams, that guy over there, he and I uh, went to seminary together we were, he, I was MC, so I was the master of ceremonies of the seminary, which meant that I basically stood there and told guys where to go whenever we had mass. Jason was the, uh, uh, the sacristan, so he set up the cloths and the chalices and all that stuff. We did this one thing, right? We both served in the military, and we did this one thing at this one mass. It was something special, like we had like a cardinal or an archbishop or something fancy going on. And we're like, we're going to make this really cool. So we did this thing where... During the Eucharistic prayer, like during the elevations, we had uh, these guys carrying candles and this one guy with incense, and uh, which, which was a normal thing at the seminary. We did it for like fancy occasions. But this time, what we did is we're like, we're going to train these guys. And they're all going to walk out like in a single file line from opposite sides. And then when they meet in the middle, at the very moment they meet, they're all going to make this sudden facing moment, facing the altar, right? And then on our signal, they're all going to genuflect immediately, then up again, and then kneel after that, all facing forward. It was, it was, so we, we practiced it, we showed them how to do it, and we did it. And it was so magnificent that the priests who were up in the sanctuary, some of them went, ooh, like, as we did it, right? It looked, it looked awesome. When we finished it, at the end of that mass, Jason and I both looked at each other and said, we should never do that again. Because the reason that we were doing it is because we wanted it to be awesome, because we wanted to show how awesome we were, right? The reason we were doing it is not like, let's do something awesome so that other people will see how good Christ is. Let's do something awesome because, man, when I see facing movements, I think the cross, you know? It was not like, it was not, it was not ordered towards bringing people to Jesus Christ. It was ordered to showing off. And once we did that, once we saw it for what it was, I think we both kind of recognized, like, that's not what this is about. And I think we can all kind of get into that mode of like, and uh, you know, there's, there, they say something about uh, liturgists. There's a joke, you've probably heard it. What's the difference between a, a liturgist and a terrorist? You can with the terrorist? That's right, you can negotiate with a terrorist, right? You can get into a mode where we don't see the liturgy anymore as drawing people to Jesus Christ, where it's simply like, it's this pomp and circumstance thing that we're doing to make it as, as like, ornate and, and, and fantastic as we can. And there's nothing wrong with beauty in the liturgy. And we should strive to make it as beautiful and as transcendent as we can. But that needs to be a transcendence that draws people in, not a transcendence that, that is just about self-promotion, right? Like this priest in this book, it was all about, like, fancy things. He might as well have been planning the coronation of like a king or like a graduation ceremony or something like that because it wasn't about Christ anymore. And that's something that I think we all have to be careful of is we can get into this mode where liturgy is merely just a set of, of rules. It's merely just a set of, of like, uh, it's a process of how well can I follow these rules the best? Not a question of what can we do, you know, following these rules to actually bring people to Jesus Christ. What can we do to make disciples? What can I do to grow in my relationship with Christ? And what can I do to bring others to that? 
All right, so that's one. That's liturgy. Two. Two is devotionals. Devotionals are good, right? Everything we're talking about today are good things, good things that we, we have received through the, through the church. But, but like, how can we make sure that that's always focused on Christ? I do, I do funerals a lot, of course, being a priest. And I think an, an anointing of the sick, um, and I think one of the most profound things I've ever seen are when people are dying, they've got their rosary in their hand. Because it's such, it's such a profound idea of like, like what would you have with you on the moment of you dying? A picture? I don't know, a fancy pen? I don't, I don't know. Like what would be the thing that you'd be holding? Like, and, and, and if you only can hold one thing, people hold the rosary. Because it's a physical, it's an incarnational representation of Christ's love. It's something that we're actually holding. It's something that actually, like, that shows us that love, that helps us feel that love. Uh, one of my classmates in seminary, when he got ordained, the whole ordination mass, he was holding his rosary in his hand, and it was, it was like he was holding Mary's hand through the whole time, right? Like, that's, that's profound. And anytime any of you have had a, a devotion to a certain saint, you know, any of you who have had a devotion through, you know, the, the Sacred Heart, uh, you know, any number of things, like, we know how good devotionals are. And the way that we can go deeper in that, the way that that can draw us deeper into our relationship with Christ, is to especially lean into that. Like, to find the, the, the devotional, find the saints, find the, 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 the thing that really brings us closer to Christ. If you walk into, a, like, Dayton Church Supply or any church goods store, they've got, like, this wall of crucifixes. And you look at those crucifixes and you think, if I had as much money as I wanted, like, which of these crucifixes would I pick? Because there are usually some that, like, especially stand out to you. But there are others that you look at and it's like, ugh. Like, there's the one, and maybe this one speaks to you, but it doesn't to me, of, like, Christ, like, leaning off the cross. Like, I see that and it freaks me out. I don't know. Uh, sometimes Christ is like is resurrected. Sometimes Christ is like I don't know dribbling a basketball. Like he does different things in these different crosses. And there's usually there's usually some that really speak to you. And that that should be the case with all devotionals. Is is there there are thousands and thousands of devotionals out there. Look at scapulars alone. Like you've got brown scapulars, red scapulars, blue scapulars, the green scapular. You've got all sorts of different ones. You've got the ones that you hide in somebody's pillow. You've got the ones that you put in their car. You've got the one you put. Like there, are, there are a bunch. Of, there, there are all all sorts of different devotionals out there. The key to growing in the devotional life is to really find the ones that speak to you in a personal way. The danger zone with that is you can get into a mode, and I've been there before where you think, like, to go deeper into the faith means to get as many devotionals as I can, right? And, and you walk into these people's houses, right? These people, it sounds so judgmental. And they've got, like, just every wall is covered with every saint. And, like, here's five pictures of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And, like, and like none of that is, is that bad. It's a little weird. I hope that doesn't sound too harsh. But like if that if that legitimately brings you closer to Christ, that's like go for it. I'm not gonna get in the way of that at all. But the point is is that we have to make sure that that like that our devotional life is not just like a proliferation of devotions, right? Not just like the more of these I get, the holier I become. And that's kind of a danger. And we probably have all had somebody come up to us also and say, like, well, do you have a devotion to Saint Gertrude the Great? And you say, no, and they say like, oh, well, maybe one day you'll be a real Catholic, right? Because, because that's something that really works for them. But the point of devotions is that like you find the thing that speaks to you especially. And what speaks to you might not speak to someone else. And what speaks to someone else might not especially speak to you. And it's not just a question of like, how many of these can I do? It's not just a question of like, I need to get a list and I'm going to check off every single one that I've ever heard of. That way, if anybody comes, like, never again will anybody ever say to me, uh, have, don't you have devotion to say Gertrude the Great? And I'll, say, I'll look like an idiot and say no. Um, 
it's the point is that we're supposed to find a number of good ones that that really mean something to us and go deep in that find a saint you love and study everything that that can be found about that saint you know find a writer that really speaks to you and go deep with that find find devotionals find crucifixes find things that especially speak to your heart and bring them into your home bring them into your life there's a quote from pope benedict This is a letter that he wrote to seminarians in 2010. He says, I urge you to retain an appreciation for popular piety, which is different in every culture, yet always remains very similar, for the human heart is ultimately one and the same. Certainly, popular piety tends towards the irrational, and at times can be superficial, yet it would be wrong to dismiss it. Through that piety, faith has entered human hearts and become part of the common patrimony of sentiments and customs, shaping the life and emotions of the community. It is thus one of the church's great treasures. The faith has taken on flesh and blood. Certainly, popular piety always needs to be purified and refocused, yet it is worthy of our love and truly makes us into the people of God, right? So that kind of like devotionals, the, the popular piety he's talking about, it can tend towards what he's saying, the superficial and the, the irrational. So we can, he's saying, we can get into the mode where it's not deep anymore. We're just like collecting. We're just doing all these things. It doesn't mean anything anymore. It can tend towards the irrational, meaning we're not, it, it doesn't even make sense anymore. But we need to always make sure that it's, it's what? Purified and refocused. And what are we focusing it on? Christ, right? Focusing on how how we can how it can bring us closer in our relationship with God. All right, that's two. The third one is community. And these are just things I just kind of pulled out of the air, these three things, right? So these are the big three that I was kind of thinking of. The, you could apply this to, to just about a lot of things in the churches. How does it bring us closer? What is what is the good in it? And how could this be, in a sense, its own idol, its own God? So community is fantastic. Fantastic, right? Like I, I was involved with a, a great, a great Catholic community when I went to college, and even though I grew up as a cradle Catholic, I grew up going to Catholic school, Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. I was in the Knights of Columbus. I did all that jazz, right? When I was there in that community, was where I really actually fell in love with Christ, and it was because I think I experienced the love of that community in a way that drew me closer to him. I experienced unconditional love. I experienced a sense of belonging. I experienced uh, a sense of just fraternity and community that if I looked at that and I said, if I can feel this loved in this community of people, how much does that mean that God loves me? And if we have that experience that draws us deeper into love with him, that is a beautiful and noble thing. And when we read about like the early church, that's the feeling you get about like Paul in these early churches. When he writes letters to them, his heart's on fire for them. He loves them. He talks about he's crying for them, right? He's weeping for them. Uh, when you talk about him talking about the people that he's, uh, he's traveling with, you can tell those are, those are really beautiful relationships. One of my favorite letters is Paul's letter to Timothy, which is just he treats him like a father. It's just so cool. And any church community, any parish, should be fostering that sense of community, right? Like this group here, Theology on Tap, should be like focusing like you guys on each other. You should be able to show love to each other in a way that that you may not be able to in other places. You should be able to challenge each other to grow in virtue and and help each other to grow in virtue. Uh, You should be providing role models for each other in a way that draws everybody closer to what we should be as Christians, right? That helps all of us be who we're actually supposed to be, who God has made us to be. That's a beautiful thing. And we can go deeper in that time by, by finding those communities, by investing, by going deep, by spending time with each other as brothers and sisters, by, by sharing our faith with, the, with each other. It's always super awkward to have the conversations about Christ, but like, those are important conversations. Like, those mean so much to us. And if you don't have those conversations, the other person might be just longing to talk about that with someone and may never get the chance. So, like, community is such a good thing that, that 
ultimately, like, we learn what divine love looks like by experiencing human love here on earth. Whether that's in our families, in our friendships, in our parish, in our community, in our school, in our work. Like, that's how we learn what God's love, love looks like. And we have to be able to show that to each other and to learn it within those relationships, right? The danger sometimes becomes is that you run into some communities where the focus is, is, is shifted, or sometimes the focus is just on the people within the community and not anybody about it outside anymore. There are, there are communities out there, par- we'll say parishes, there are parishes out there where it's, it's very much of just like, this is who we are, this is the way that we've always done it, and uh, if anybody else wants to be a part of us, then they're going to have to do just whatever we want to do, and it doesn't really matter what, what they're looking for in their relationship with the Lord, right? Any community, any group, like the really good youth groups, the really good young adult ministries are the ones that reach out and bring other people in. Like you hit a point in a, in a community, in a faith community like that, where the point is, is like, we want to share something beautiful with as many people as we can. And if you're not doing that, if you're just focused on yourselves or some alternate sort of mission, then the community always ends up drying up and falling apart because it doesn't receive its life from Christ anymore. One of the dangers of like young adult groups in particular, and I'm not accusing you of this because I, I, I don't really know you all that well yet, right? But, but like one of the dangers with that is it can end up like focused on the wrong thing. Young adult communities, if you're not careful, can turn into like the lonely heart clubs of people who are like looking for for meeting spouses, right? And that's not a bad thing to look for in a Catholic community. Like that's great. That is good. But the point is is that like you should be trying to grow deeper in Christ as a community and and like that's that's what you're looking for those relationships in. Is is not just like a a, a Christian mingle type organization, but like we're all trying to grow, grow closer to Jesus Christ. And it's through that pursuit of Christ, it's through that pursuit of God that we receive what he wants for us, that he receives what we need to be fulfilled and be happy. So there you have it. Liturgy, devotionals, and community. All, all very good things that the church and that Christ gives us to grow deeper in our faith, but all things that we have to be careful that, uh, that we keep it always pointed towards him. And I think ultimately, like, that can be tough because... There are, like, life Life can be super hard, as you all know. The way that the church is going in the world today, like, it's a tough time to be a Christian. It's a tough time to be a Catholic. Uh, with all the, the stuff going on and uh, with the, the abuse that's coming out, with all the stuff going on just through modern culture changing the way it is, with the culture wars, with, with marriage, with gender, with everything, it's difficult, you know, to stand up for the teachings of the church. It's difficult to hold your head high and say that, you know, that you're a Catholic. I've been ordained for two and a half years, which is not super long, right? But it's been in the past few months that wearing a collar out in public, it feels like it means something a lot different than it did a few months ago because of of everything that's going on. If you're not focused on Jesus Christ as the goal, as the one thing that you love most in the world and the one thing that you want to always pursue, if you're not focused on that relationship and you're doing it for any other reason at all, then you're not going to be able to survive. Like, we have this image image of martyrdom, right? We talk to folks, if, if you were ever, like, challenged for your faith, if somebody said, like, reject Christ or die, we all kind of have this idea of, like, I could, I could do that. I, I wouldn't sacrifice Christ at a moment like that. But, like, that means saying yes to Christ in everything else. Like, if we can't do it in the little things, we're not going to be able to do it in the big things. If we can't do it in just day-to-day life, then we're not going to be able to do it in those really big moments of life. And that means constantly focusing on, am I looking for Jesus in this? Am I looking for Jesus in my work? Am I looking for Jesus in my school? Am I looking for Jesus in this relationship? Am I looking for Jesus in my marriage? Am I looking for Jesus in my family? Am I looking for Jesus in everything that he puts in front of me? And if we're focused on anything else in front of him, then 
when the test comes, like when he comes to us and says, follow me, are we going to be able to say yes? We need to experience that love, right? We need to know how much he cares about us. And that love, the desire to be loved, and the desire to love in return needs to be the most important part of our lives. So maybe we can spend some time, I don't know, this, this week, this evening, in your private conversations, like just saying, like, do I do that in everything? Am I his disciple and his alone? And maybe what are those things that still stand in my way? What are those things that are still those source, those obstacles, those things that are keeping me from following him totally? And how can I let him into even that? All right. That's all I got. Thank you all for listening tonight. Number one. All right. Where do you recommend I turn to get brief saints' writings? Then I can find out who fits best with me. Um, so kind of like a, a summary of a lot of different, like writings from a lot of different saints to kind of figure out from all of them uh, who like best fits with you. It's tricky because a lot of times, like at least at least for me, it's always been like I read something about somebody and think like, oh, I'd like to, I'd like to figure out more about that person. It's usually not necessarily reading something that they've written. It's just reading something that somebody said about them. And then like I got into... St. Gemma Galgani. Anybody heard of Gemma Galgani? Italian mystic. She died pretty young. I just like came across somebody said something about her somewhere, and I said, I'd like to read more about that. So I got a book and got and read the book, and it was like, this is like very meaningful and powerful to me, right? And answer the question, I'd say if you're familiar with the Liturgy of the Hours, which is the, the prayers that priests and nuns and everybody say every day, there's one of them that's called the, uh, the Office of Readings, and it consists of two readings, the first of which is from scriptures, the second of which is from either a church document or some saint. As priests, we do that every day, and there are often times where I come across something and I'm like, oh yeah, I like this guy's style, I'm going to read more from him, right? St. John Chrysostom has got some homilies where he's just tearing into people, and it's like, oh, I want to learn what this guy's so angry about, right? Those are, that's pretty good, but I don't know if that's something the average person would be able to commit to, is reading something every day like that. There's another resource. St. Thomas Aquinas compiled uh, a commentary on the, on the Gospels, and the way that he did that is he got the thoughts of a lot of different church fathers and put them together and ordered them so that for each, like, section of a certain chapter of Luke, for instance, it'll have that chapter and then it'll say what every one of like the major church fathers said about like these three lines or something like that. I have really enjoyed that just as a way to, if you're reading a scripture passage and you're like, I've got no idea what the heck this means, then you can go in and see what a lot of the early fathers of the church say about it. And that's also, I'd say, in answer to the question, a really great way to, again, be like, oh, that's a great answer. And I'm, you know, if you do that for a little while, you start to learn, like, yeah, Augustine's always got good stuff to say about this, or so-and-so always has got something awesome about this. And you can kind of, like, sort of narrow down. It's like, I really like this guy's stuff. I really like this lady's, like, thoughts on this or whatever. Like, it helps you kind of find. So the name of that resource is the the Catena Aria, C-A-T-E-N-A, a-U-R-E-A, which means the golden chain, the golden chain. Um, so if you want to look into that as both like a resource for understanding scriptures and of a way of getting to know different early saints, that's a great resource. I guess that's all that I've, I've probably got is those is those two, is the Liturgy of the Hours and the Catena Aria, um, other than like they're like saint a day sort of thing. Uh, one Lent, I said <laughs> one Lent, I said every day of Lent, I'm going to study another, another virgin martyr and write down everything I can on a piece of paper. And then at the end, I'll have 40. And I, 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 I got like halfway through before I just ran out of things to like people to look at. But like there, you could, there are like saint a day things, emails and stuff that you might be able to look into just to like get exposed to a lot of saints. And maybe one in 10 is one where you're like, I'd like to look a little bit more into, into that situation. That's something that 
that resonates. All right. Once you realize your motives are not directed towards God, what are the first steps to getting back on track? I think it's important in my faith journey, um, like I kind of shared a little bit, I had a moment in college where it really kind of hit me how much God loves me, right? And I had a really good college community there, a Catholic community. There are moments where I think I kind of realize I'm not living up to who I should be and what I should be doing. And I think the most important thing at that moment is to not give up on the ideal. Is to not, because because there can be this temptation to settle into kind of like a spirituality for the long run, where you just kind of say like, well, I had this really great experience, but that's a once in a lifetime sort of thing. And now I just have to ride it out until God chooses to give me another great experience maybe once I'm dead, right? Like, And like you can kind of settle into this mentality of like, well, the, the conversion's done. Now it's, it's like almost like the honeymoon's over. Now I'm just married. Great. But like, like that's, that's a really awful way to live marriage, right? Like, and it's certainly an awful way to live in our, our relationship of God of just saying like, I must be done now with all the romance of conversion, so to speak. But the ideal is that we are constantly growing and being challenged in our relationship with Christ. The ideal is that we're constantly going deeper. And the ideal is that we see him acting in our life all the time. And I think when we kind of realize that we're not where we should be in that, I think the greatest temptation is to give up on the ideal um, and to say, like, this is just the way it's supposed to feel. I think that's, that's the temptation. I think it's also incredibly dangerous because it ends up that we just settle for being something less than we know that we're called to and giving up on the desires that God has placed in our hearts, right? So I guess I'd say don't, if you realize you're not where you should be, like just remember the love you once had. Remember the love you had in the beginning. Remember what you're called to. Remember your dignity. And remember how much you want that. And if you really messed up, go to confession. That's fine. That's why we have it. And just... Keep turning yourself more and more towards him. What is your favorite part of being a priest? I really love like strategic meetings within a parish if they're done well, where you're sitting there and you're like, all right, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about this program. Is this program working? No. Let's talk about how we can do this better. Let's talk about how we can reformat that. Let's talk about cutting it or replacing it or let's do it. Like to actually sit down and say like, how are we going to really engage with this? How are we going to really uh, uh, make a difference? You don't find that everywhere, but ideally you want to be into that sort of, in that place in your life where you are actually, at least for me, like where I'm, you're trying, you're making that difference. You're, you're taking those steps, right? I'm a teacher right now. I teach at Alter High School, which that's that's super fun. I enjoy that. I kind of enjoy teaching teaching the kids, especially like questions and stuff are always fun. Preaching, I enjoy preaching and, and celebrating mass. That's a lot of fun. When I was in seminary, the thing that always like really fascinated me the most was like giving blessings, right? Because I'm like, man, all you do is this. And like all this grace just comes out. It's just like a simple little thing. And that, like, uh, that, that probably sounds like borderline, uh, like, I don't know, on the spectrum somewhere. But, like, that's, that, that really fascinated me. Um, so that's, I think that's kind of cool, too. Like, the priesthood has, has such grace channeled through it that's not based on what you're doing. It's based on what Christ is doing through you. And I think that's, that's pretty cool, too. The last one here, regarding your comment on practices becoming rote, have you ever become to a point in your own walk where you came to a breaking point, where you were hanging by a thread and have nothing left, but have discerned to stay the course, even though you are breaking, and go through that, but not go over to the dark side? So there are, I think there can be moments in our life that, that are incredibly difficult, that are just super tough and don't make sense especially if you're really trying to follow Christ and things just go to crap, right? Like that can be incredibly painful and you can go through that and just be like, all right, God, any, any minute now you can, you can come in and make this better. And it can keep going for a long time. 
where you're asking for God and you don't feel him and you're trying to figure out just where he wants you and you're trying to figure out what you can do to, to get back to where you were and it, it just it takes forever to come. The way that I, like, and I've had those moments, certainly, and sometimes they've lasted for a very long time, and I think, like, Saint, uh, Saint Ignatius talks about when you feel God's presence in your life, when you really feel it in a powerful way, he says, remember that and hold on to that. Because Ignatius especially talks about, like, there are high points and there are low points, and we grow closer to Christ in those low points in a profound way. But he says, like, you need to remember the high points that you can, when you're going through the low points, you can say, like, I know that he's here. Because we've probably had those moments where we go through the valley, and on the other side, we're like, oh, crap, he was here the whole time. Like, that stupid, stinking, like, footprints in the sand poem. Like, that, that's, it's so cheesy. But it's like, like, he, uh, like, we feel coming out of it, like that moment, there, and, and, and it's happened for me where you have that moment where you're like, that's why I went through all of that. I can see what he was doing in me, and I can see now, how, having gone through that, I can see now how I'm ready for the next thing that he's calling me to. And when you're in that valley, you, you cannot appreciate that, right? Like it doesn't make sense, you don't see it. And I know that. And if you're going through that valley right now, everything I might say might just sound like a bunch of baloney because it's very difficult to see it when you're going through it. And that's why Ignatius says, like, when you hit the high points, you remember that. And you remember how you said to yourself, I never could have seen it there, but he was always with me. And then when you go through the dark points next time, you can say to yourself, there was that time that he was always with me even though I didn't see it. Because I really believe that it's through those, those really dark times that he actually makes us the holiest and makes us what, what he needs us to be. If you guys ever, uh, like if any of you have ever run, like I ran cross country and track. Uh, it, was, it was a bad idea, it was a silly decision in my youth, but, but you know. <laughs> if you're running like with other people and you're actually like trying to get better and get faster and set your personal record all the time, you get a pacer. And the point of a pacer, ideally, is that they're a little bit faster than you. They're always constantly like pulling you to go faster. And sometimes that means that you're always trying to catch them and you never actually can, right? Like they're always a little bit in front of you. And the reason that you're doing that is because they're trying to get you to go faster. I think that God in what feels like a jerk move, but is actually a moment of incredible love, is there are moments where you're close to him and he kind of steps away from you in the direction where he wants to lead you. And you're there and you feel, it's like, it's like watching a child when their mother or dad does like the peekaboo and they're gone. They're like, where are you? They're freaking out, right? And then you're there and, oh, it's great again. But in that moment of like, God's gone, it's like, it's, it's darkness, it's rough. But he's gone because what he's asking you to, to, to do is to look at your life and say, like, like, I need to get where he is. I need to find him. I'm desperate for him. And you have to feel that desperation in a sense. You have to feel like, I need him. There's nothing else in my life that will satisfy me until I find him. And in that moment, that's the moment where you search for him, right? So through that He'll lead us towards being the saints that he's made us to be. He'll make us stronger. He'll make us holier. He'll give us virtue. But most of all, he teaches us to desire him, to desire righteousness, to desire holiness, to desire love in a way that only he can give. And so it's through that that we, that we go for it, right? That we actually pursue him. If he didn't do that, we would remain children we'd end up just being immature followers of Christ. We learn fortitude. We learn to really appreciate him for who he is by following him. There's that story, uh, the, the Quo Vadi story, of uh, St. Peter who's in Rome, and he's fleeing Rome because they're going to kill him, right? And as he's walking out of Rome, he sees somebody coming other, the other way, and, and as it gets closer, he realizes that it's Christ, 
And Peter looks at him and says, where are you going, Lord? And the, our Lord looks at him and says, I'm going to Rome to be crucified again. And it's that moment where Peter realizes that he's called to be a martyr now. And he turns around and goes back to Rome to be crucified with our Lord, right? I don't know what, fate, what Peter's faith journey up to that point looked like. But at that moment, he surely was leaving Rome thinking, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It may have been years since he had a real encounter with Christ. This may well have been like the last time like he actually like saw Christ in a very long time. During all of that, it would have been insanely difficult. But at that moment, Christ was there. We're called to pursue him. We're called to follow him. There's that line from uh, Risen, that movie with the centurion, right? Where Peter says to the centurion, he says, like, we're followers. We follow him. Like, it takes a lot of trust. And sometimes it's, it's really difficult during the darkness. But we're called to follow him even if we don't know where that is. Even if we don't understand why we don't know where it is, right? So if you're going through that sort of dark moment in your life, let your desire build for Christ. And it may be super high already, and you may be super frustrated with me saying this because you're saying, like, I do, I do, I do. But, like, he is, he is doing something in your life. He is calling you in a new way closer and closer to his heart. And that sometimes is the cross. Like, we, we cannot get close to Jesus without getting close to the cross. And that's difficult, and I am sorry if you're going through that darkness right now, but that's in a way, it's something very, very beautiful. And I hope that, that soon he reveals to you what, what good that is. That's, that was long, but that's, that's, all I, that's all I have to say about that. All right. I think that's it for questions. Uh, uh, I'm getting the signal. I'm supposed to pray with you now. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, please help us to be your disciples and your disciples alone. Please heal our hearts. Please purify our hearts. Please teach us how to follow you. Lord, we don't have anything that we can offer you. We don't have, have anything. We've got, we've got just wounded hearts. We've got wounded souls. But what we offer you today is, is just, just the desire to be your, soul, your servants. We want to be yours, Lord. We don't want to be anything else. We want to love you and you alone. We want nothing more than to grow ourselves in our relationship with you and to bring your lost, your lost sheep home to you. We ask that you may give us, give us what we need to follow you faithfully. We ask that you may bless us with all the grace, all the skills, all the charisms that, that we need to be your disciples. And we ask that you give us the peace and the confidence of knowing that we're following you. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. May Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.